The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week I unpacked the second of Jesus' six antitheses in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which was on adultery and lust. And uh, according to the schedule, we should be on the third antithesis this Sunday, which is the topic of divorce and remarriage. Uh, And I'm sure you've sort of figured out, if you've been here at ICC for any length of time, that my normal rhythm is to sort of do a brief review of the previous week's message to try to connect that theme to whatever the, the new topic is that I'm preaching for the current week. And as I was putting together that review, what I realized was that there's just uh, too much that I still wanted to say on this second antithesis of adultery and lust uh, that I could not capture at all in just this brief review. And so what I've decided is I'm basically going to do a part two to that last week's message and stay on this theme for another week. And then the next time I preach, we'll move on into the third antithesis of divorce and remarriage. Okay? Um, Some current events uh, of our time have generated a lot of discussion and even debate on the church's views on sexual purity. Uh, And it's spilled over into the secular media. And uh, and so it's really become a national discussion in many ways. And these conversations, I think, when I read what's happening online, have created a lot of confusion for people both inside the church as well as outside the church. What exactly is the Christian position on these issues related to sexual purity? The text from last week is Matthew 5, 27 to 30, and it reads, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In that last message, I pointed out how Jesus uses this hyperbolic language of gouging out an eye or severing a hand in order to emphasize the seriousness with which we need to address the issue of lust at its source in terms of the heart that is inside of us. However, what I also want to really focus on today is that in our zeal to combat lust, I think one issue that has to be raised is that I think we've gone beyond what Scripture itself teaches. And it has had the unintended consequence of hurting the very people that it was attempting to help. And I want to unpack that a bit today in the second part on this topic. As, we've been, as I've been sharing for each of these messages, for each of these antitheses, Jesus begins with his Old Testament law or command and then redirects the audience's attention to the heart underneath that command. And so Jesus expands his focus from the outward act of adultery to the heart of adultery, which he locates as the sin of lust, the sin of lust. And as modern readers, as I pointed out last week, it's really easy to miss one of the most radical aspects of this teaching. Because in ancient times, 
the lion's share of the blame fell on the woman, on the woman, who was really seen as the problem here. She is the evil temptress, the one that seduces men to fall into sexual temptation. But Jesus goes against that tradition and argues that the men who lust after these women are the ones that need to take responsibility for the sin in their heart. In that last sermon, I pointed out how ancient Jewish texts clearly expose this bias against women and how even in modern-day Muslim countries, uh, they perpetuate this viewpoint that men must be protected from the seduction of women. It's, their, it's the woman's responsibility to make sure that they don't make men stumble. But what I don't think I was really able to fully unpack last week is that that same bias against women, that same blame shifting occurs in the church today. We may not require our women to be covered head to toe, in a hijab or a burqa or whatever, um, but I would argue that even in, our, in the church of Jesus Christ, in our modern times, there are often expressions of our attempt to combat lust that place an unfair burden on women to be the ones who are going to take the responsibility to avoid sexual temptation rather than the men. You know, in the last message, I made the statement that the core problem with lust is the way that it devalues and dehumanizes women and men uh, it can work both ways, by reducing them to nothing more than objects of sexual desire. It de it's, a, it's a dehumanizing, devaluing sin. But I want to make an additional statement, and it is this. Even our attempted solutions to the problem of lust can have the unintended consequence of objectifying and devaluing women. And in parentheses, I'll put men as well. Because like I said, I do believe it can flow both ways. Let me explain what I mean by this statement. Some of you may be familiar with what is commonly called the Billy Graham rule. It's also known as the Modesto Manifesto. And more recently has been also labeled the Mike Pence rule because former Vice President Mike Pence embraced this rule for his own life and became the butt of a lot of jokes in late night TV and secular media as a result of it. Uh, in the 1940s, during one of his crusades in Modesto, California, the Billy Graham Evangelization Organization got together in that meeting and said, hey, you know, what we want to do is to make sure that there is absolutely no hint of impropriety or immorality uh, in our organization, and particularly with our leader, Billy Graham. And so to avoid even the hint of misconduct, uh, they created this manifesto. And it dealt with a lot of things, including finances and things like that. But when it came to women, the rule that Billy Graham established is that he would never travel 
never eat, never meet with a woman who was not his wife alone in any context, period, no exceptions. And in light of this Me Too movement, as well as the numerous sexual scandals in the church itself, famous pastors and other leaders who have fallen to sexual sin, people have been asking if this Billy Graham rule should be practiced by every Christian leader. In fact, many Christian circles have expanded the Billy Graham rule to apply not only to Christian leadership, but to any relationship between a man and a woman, whether it's a working relationship or a friendship or whatever. Now, let me say this. I think few would question the wisdom of setting some healthy boundaries to guide opposite-sex relationships. It's just common sense. But many in recent days have pointed also to the problem that this rule creates in the relationship between men and women. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 to 28, it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And so here, the Bible makes this clear statement that both men and women have been made in the image of God and by God have been granted the authority to rule over his creation. And so I think what the beginning of Genesis tells us is that from the very beginning, God's design was for both men and women to share equally in this work of creation care, working side by side with one another in equal partnership. But here's the problem. The Billy Graham rule and other rules like it, while not its intention, I think it had good intentions, can basically end up portraying women working alongside men as not something beautiful, but a problem, a danger, which basically then results in the need to contain women, whether at church or in the workplace or in any other setting where men and women must be together with each other. And that's a problem. That's not a model for healthy relationships between the sexes. Caitlin Beattie writes in an op-ed she wrote for the New York Times, the Pence rule arises from a broken view of the sexes. Men are lustful beasts that must be contained, while women are objects of desire that must be hidden away. Offering the Pence rule as a solution to male predation is like saying, quote, I can't meet with you one-on-one, -on -one, otherwise I might eventually assault you. If that's the case, we have far deeper problems around men and power than any personal conduct rule can solve. Most female Christian leaders I know find the Pence rule frustrating. Imagine a male boss keeps some variation of the rule but is happy to meet with a male peer over lunch or travel with him for business. The informal and strategic conversations they can have is the stuff of workplace advancement. Unless there are women in senior leadership positions, and in many Christian organizations there are not, women will never benefit from the kind of advancement available to men. 
The answer is not to ask women to leave the room. It is to hold all men in the room accountable and kick out those who long ago lost their right to be there. (laughs) Pretty provocative words, isn't it? But I think she has a point here. Rather than seeing women first and foremost as equal image bearers of God, called by God himself for them to participate in this work of creation care, they become treated as dangerous objects of sexual desire that must be kept away from men. And as Beattie points out, the result is that women are pushed out of opportunities to have any real voice or influence in many Christian settings. And as I pointed out last week, ultimately, lust cannot be defeated if our only strategy is to limit access to the opposite sex. That doesn't win the battle, ultimately. What's needed is a heart change at the deepest level so that rather than objectifying the opposite sex, we see them as fellow image bearers of God who are deserving of our genuine love and dignity. (laughs) Amen? That has to be the resounding affirmation and witness of the church, not just putting up guardrails, but to redeem what is broken in opposite sex relationships. To be able to say that I can actually have a healthy relationship with another man or a woman. And there be no sexual innuendo. No attempt at manipulation or coercion toward some other agenda. Let there be a purity that flows out of a fundamentally different way that I have come to see this person. As a child of God. As one deserving of dignity. My dignity. My respect my protection. I think it's noteworthy that Jesus himself didn't follow the Billy Graham rule. And I shared about this a bit last week, right? Resting by a well in the outskirts of a Samaritan town named Sychar, he strikes up a conversation with a woman who had come to draw water. And Jesus was alone Because his disciples had gone to buy food in the town. And this woman was alone. Because she had a checkered past with men. And she came at an odd hour to draw water. In order to avoid the judgmental stares of the other women in the village. So here they are, two people, all alone. And according to the Billy Graham rule, Jesus should just look the other way, shouldn't he? And that's actually what Jewish culture dictated centuries before Billy Graham. But there at that well, with no ulterior motives, Jesus ministered to her deepest needs out of love for her. And this is just one among numerous examples of Jesus breaking down the walls that separated men and women in Jewish culture, modeling for his disciples and the world to see what healthy relationships with the opposite sex ought to look like. Now, listen, some common sense boundaries are needed. 
There need to be some safety rails here. There is a difference between having breakfast with someone of the opposite sex at a cafe in the morning and meeting that same person late night at a hotel bar over drinks on a business trip, right? Those are not the same thing. But what I'm saying is that ultimately we need to look beyond the safeguards and earnestly ask God for a changed heart to see others, regardless of their gender, not as objects of my own desire, but as people who are worthy of my love and dignity. We all need healing in this area. We do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 7 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. I think this is the battle cry for healing for gender relationships. Let that mind that was in Jesus be your own mind. And let that impact be felt in the way that you see and treat others in your life. Even when they are the opposite sex. This is the ultimate weapon against lust. To have the mindset of Jesus valuing others above ourselves with pure motives. There's another area of confusion that I also want to address when it comes to this issue of battling lust and seeking sexual purity in the church. After a young Christian man struggled with uh, sex addiction, he ended up killing eight people, six of whom were Asian women, in March of this year in Atlanta-area spas and massage parlors. And once that news story came out, suddenly the term purity culture was introduced into the nation's vocabulary. Reports eventually emerged days after the shooting that the shooter had been undergoing treatment for sex addiction through a Christian ministry that followed this paradigm of purity culture, but that he had recently relapsed and in that anguish of shame and guilt, he went and killed these people. I want to talk a little bit this morning about purity culture and say a few words on how I think the Bible speaks to that as well. Now, I don't know, some of you may be very familiar with the concept of purity culture. I suspect some of you have never actually even heard it before. And it's the first time you're hearing it, but I suspect... If you've been in the church for any length of time, maybe you didn't know that that was the label, but you probably have come across it in different ways. Purity culture is an evangelical movement that began in the church in the 1990s as a reaction to the alarming rise of sexual activity and pregnancies among teens in America. And so movements like True Love Waits invited youth to basically pledge a pledge of abstinence. And so they would sign these pledge cards 
that committed that they would remain as virgins until their wedding night. And purity rings became a thing where many of these teens who took the pledge would buy these purity rings and they would wear it on their finger as a reminder of that pledge. And these rings, some years back, made national news when celebrities like Miley Silas, uh, Cyrus and uh, Demi Lovato and Selena Gomez and even the Jonas Brothers all began to wear these rings. Another expression of the purity culture were these father-daughter purity dances. There were these social gatherings where fathers dated their daughters. And then in that dance would often, these girls would take a pledge to remain sexually pure until their marriage. And then for many of these events, the father would also make a pledge to their daughters to set an example of sexual purity for their daughters as well. And then in 1997, uh, the big bomb went off when this book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris was released. And it quickly became a bestseller. And it basically became the Bible for purity culture. Harris popularized the idea of courting instead of dating and arguing that the couple's first kiss ought only to happen on the wedding day. And he claimed in the book that the reward for keeping your virginity would be a satisfying marriage and a fulfilling and exciting sex life, which you would squander if you had premarital sex. Let me say this. Although the popularity of purity culture in its heyday was the 1990s, it has had an undeniable enduring influence in many Christian circles, even up to the very present time, as that shooting in Atlanta exposed. Um, so what are we to say about purity culture in the evangelical church? Well, what I want to say about it is this. Listen, while the goal of encouraging sexual purity is a noble one and a fully biblical one, in fact, that I would, with no qualifications, affirm, I think young people ought to abstain from sex until marriage. It's my sincere belief. But the problem with purity culture is that it has gone significantly beyond what the Bible itself, I think, affirms. And one of the unintended consequences of purity culture is that with all of its rules and regulations, uh, it has ended up motivating Christian young people mostly out of fear and shame. A lot of which, as I'm going to unpack here, ends up once again, not surprisingly, falling on the girls more so than the boys. Girls are the ones who are primarily responsible for keeping the relationship pure, making sure that their actions and words and their clothing and how they dress, all of that, their makeup, doesn't in any way tempt a guy sexually. Years after writing I Kiss Dating Goodbye, Harris actually participated in a documentary that was released just a few years ago, renouncing many of the principles that he wrote in that book. 
And I just want to play for you the trailer for you to get a, a bit of a gist of what that renunciation looked like. So let's go ahead and just going to just run for a couple minutes. Let's watch that video and then we'll go on. One of the big problems with purity culture is that it reduces purity to the issue of physical virginity. And it ended up portraying the loss of your virginity, uh, and again, particularly for girls, as an almost unrecoverable sin. Um, columnist David French was pulled into purity culture by his college girlfriend and was shocked at what he discovered by that culture in the church. And he writes, premarital sexual sin was viewed as defining, status-changing rebellion. You could be forgiven, but if you were no longer a virgin, your life, your wedding, and your marriage would be diminished as a result. You would walk down the aisle fundamentally tarnished, having lost something you could never get back. Women bore a special burden to protect young men from lust and later satisfy their husbands' desires. In one particularly pernicious ritual, youth pastors and summer camps would show Christian teenagers two pennies, one brand new and others that had been in circulation. The brand new penny was pure. The dirty pennies were handled. And the more they were handled, the dirtier they became. Listen, in our desire to teach our youth the importance of sexual purity, have we made premarital sex an unpardonable sin? Think about it for a minute. A dirty coin, a flower with all the petals pulled off. What a powerful and terrifying imagery to show to a teenage girl who is now given the charge to make sure she protects her purity until her wedding day. The message was loud and clear. If you are no longer a virgin, you are damaged goods in the eyes of God. And you can never get that purity back fully. And I want to say how contrary that is to the grace found in the gospel. I don't want to dodge the fact that this is a really difficult road to navigate here. Because we do want our young people to take sex seriously. That's actually, I will absolutely affirm a massive problem in our culture today is how lightly sexual activity is taken. It's just viewed as performance, as entertainment, as distraction. And as parents... Any of you who are parents here, I think you definitely hope your children will be able to overcome the enormous pressures they're going to face as teenagers when it comes to sex. One of the things we can say, though, that the data on the purity culture's approach to protecting our youth is not very encouraging at all. According to one study, and many studies have been like it that found similar results, found that this abstinence pledge made actually no real difference in sexual activity years later. 85% of those who signed the pledge five years later denied that they ever signed it. 
even though there's evidence right there that they did. 61% broke that pledge and had sex. And of the remaining 39% that said that they didn't break the pledge, 55% of them had engaged in very serious sexual activity short of intercourse. Sadly, one of the only statistically significant differences between teens who signed a pledge card and the average teen in America is the fact that those who signed the pledge card, 30% of them who became sexually active became pregnant, while only 18% of the general teen population experienced teen pregnancy. And what that seems to indicate is that although they made the decision to become sexually active, the guilt and the shame was so great that to be on birth control felt like too premeditated in an act. And so they would just do it spontaneously and sadly, more often than even non-Christians, end up getting pregnant as a result of that premarital activity. Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing by Grace, about grace, legalism fails miserably at the one thing it is supposed to do, encourage obedience. I say that again. Legalism fails miserably at the one thing it is supposed to do, encourage obedience. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 to 10, Paul puts it like this. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. You see, what Paul is saying is rules aren't inherently bad. They're good. They actually tell us the life that God wants from us. The problem, though, is that by themselves, rules don't have the power to make us good. In fact, what he says is because our hearts are so twisted by sin... Being told the rule ends up having the opposite effect of us now wanting to do the very thing that we're forbidden to do by that commandment. And so what I'm saying is this. Whatever approach we adopt for battling lust in the church, it must always be rooted in the gospel of grace and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Sexual sin is serious and ought to be avoided as much as we can. But it isn't unpardonable. It does not define us. Isaiah 1, 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. What a beautiful image that the prophet Isaiah paints of the grace of God covering over all of our sins like a freshly fallen blanket of snow in the winter, making everything white. So that's what the love of God is like when he sees your sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, says at one time we too were foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. What Titus is telling the church is all of us have a past. All of us have a past. And we all did things that we're not proud of. But God sent his son, not because of any righteousness that we did, but out of his kindness and love, saving us and washing us and giving us new life. And that is where the confidence of the Christian lies. Not the fact that you made it to your marriage a virgin. Not in your own worthiness, but in the grace and love of God that covers over all of our sin. There is no sin so great that God cannot forgive us and restore us and make us whole. I think as I wrap up this message now, what these studies show is that Beyond the fear of messing up, we haven't offered our teens a very compelling reason to abstain from sex before marriage, have we? The statistics bear it out. Two out of every three Christian teens have premarital sex, even to this very day. The statistics haven't changed very much. And I think there is this fundamental question, what are they saving themselves for? And that's the great tragedy in all this to me. Because the Bible actually has an amazing story to tell about the gift of sex given to us and the role that it plays in his creation. I think there is this flippant question that I have seen tossed around a lot saying, does God really care what I do in my bedroom? And I think that question is asked to say, you you moralistic Christians who are so worried about everyone's sex life, like if there is a God who is this cosmic creator of this universe, doesn't he have bigger things to worry about than what I'm doing under my sheets? And I would say, yes, God cares. Because sex is more than just a physical act. It is part of and it's a central part of the story of creation and redemption that God wants to tell in our lives. And how you view sex is going to have a huge impact on how you come to understand that story in your life. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 10, I'll just close with this. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self, with its practices, and put on the new self, which, be, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So I was prepping for this message this last week. I, I read uh, Lauren Winner's book, uh, Real Sex. And out of everything I read in that entire book, this line that just arrested my attention was when she said, chastity is not the mere absence of sex, but an active conforming of one's body to the ark of the gospel. I love that line. What she's saying is, the story of sex cannot be told apart from the story of marriage. And the story of mar marriage ultimately tells us the story of God's love for us. That is why God cares what happens in your bedroom. Get sex wrong. Get marriage wrong. And the repercussions of that view of your life, your identity of the God who has made this world is going to be profound. And I don't have time really to unpack that today, but I'm going to get into that when I talk about divorce and remarriage in the next message. But let me just leave you with that thought. In all of the misinformation and misguided ways that we've been told by the world to think about sex. What we find in the pages of Scripture is a very different story, a beautiful story of love and intimacy and healing and wholeness. And sex is a very important and central part of that story. Let's pray. There's no way around it. We are sexual beings. We have sex drives. We are attracted to people sexually. And just because you've made it to marriage <laughs> doesn't mean that your struggle with sexual temptation is over by any means. Trying to make it to the wedding vows of virgin is a very narrow way to view sexual purity. It's a battle for the rest of your life even in married life, isn't it? And there can be this very almost animalistic instinct to say, you know, what's the big deal about this? Why are Christians so obsessed with this? Why can't they be more enlightened and progressive about sex? Why are they so uptight about it? And it's because in the world's eyes, sex is viewed so flippantly, so cheaply as just a physical act. Like I said, like entertainment, like performance. That's the kind of language that we use to talk about sex. But God tells a far more profound and beautiful story of sin and brokenness in our world and a healing and redemption that is being accomplished out of an amazing self-giving act of love by a God who loves us. And that story is being recreated in your life every day. I don't know. 
I think anytime this topic of sex comes up, I think some of you really struggle because some of you do have that checkered past and you've messed up in different ways. And unfortunately, sometimes there's been a messaging from the church that somehow we've set apart sex as this unpardonable sin that you're damaged goods, you're tainted. You will forever be in another category because you screwed up and you ruined it for yourself. You messed up. And that is so against the gospel message. As Jesus says to the prophet, let us reason together. Reason with me. Though your sins are red as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. I pray that by faith you would believe in that restoring and redeeming work that Jesus can do in your life out of his kindness and love and mercy toward us because of what Christ has done on the cross. Let me just give you a couple minutes to pray in response to this message. And then in a moment, we're going to come here to the Lord's table and take communion together. Let's pray. On the night that he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in an upper room and had a final Passover meal with them. And in taking that meal of Passover, he radically transformed the elements of that meal from the Old Testament exodus of Moses to a new covenant he made with his disciples. And as he broke that bread, he said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And he said, when you, as he passed the cup and had them drink from the cup, he said, this cup represents my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. One of the great gifts of this pandemic, as I've said multiple times, is that our church has started taking communion every Sunday. And I love the fact that we end every message by the application of coming to the Lord's table because it's a reminder to every one of us, I need this table. I need this mercy and grace of God to cover me. And so as we think about our own past and as we think about guilt and shame that at times feels like it's overtaking us. Let's also remember what Jesus said. Remember what I've done for you on the cross. I have reconciled you to the Father and given you peace with God through my sacrifice on the cross. As we remember that sacrifice, let's first take from the bread and then next take from the cup and then just uh, pray for a few minutes and I'll close this in a word of prayer and then our worship team will come to lead us in a time of closing.
Let's pray. Father, we live in such a broken and confused world that has taken your creation and turned everything so upside down. God, we confess that in many ways we are a victim to that brokenness and the brokenness we've experienced in our own lives. But what more can we say than thank you for your unbelievable kindness and mercy to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us. God, I pray that if Satan is using a sexual past to weigh down anyone's heart in this room this day, that you would set them free with the joy of the gospel message, that when the sun sets us free, we are free indeed. Let us without any hint of shame or guilt be able to celebrate with the community of God's people, the joy of a new life, a new heart, of seeing our reddest stain made white as snow. And Lord, we ask that in that saving work that you do, do not only declare us righteous, but make us to be so. Change our very eyes that so often do lust after others to have the eyes of Christ so that we can see them as you see them and represent in this broken world what real healing and wholeness looks like. The love of Christ on display to others through us as we offer this ministry of reconciliation to others. We pray this all in your son's name.